1 Kings and chapter 10. Going to read the first 13 verses. Let's hear the word of God. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of the waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants, who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of Almagwood and precious stones from Ophir. The king made steps of the Almagwood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such Almagwood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, Besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country. She and her servants. Let's pray. O Lord our God, again we beseech you to open our eyes in order that we might understand your word. As we see Solomon in all his glory, we pray, our God, that we may see further than King Solomon and see the glory of our God and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and realize the riches and the blessings and the prosperity that is ours because of your grace to us in Christ. Lord, we pray, teach us, By your Spirit, then, we pray this night, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. King Solomon is often accused of covetousness, affluence, self-indulgence, excess and extravagance, and oppression. And there are no shortage of critics of King Solomon. Now, we are the first to say that he was not perfect by any means. But as we've worked our way through 1 Kings 1 through 9, very few of those criticisms can be made to stick. And chapter 10 is no different. Chapter 11 is different. And we will come to that in due course because that records his sad decline and fall at the end of his life some people looking at chapter 10 
picking up on the never agains, which we read in verse 10 and 12, and then the passage that we did not read, for example, in verse 20, nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom, talking of this great and wonderful throne on which he sat. And then in verse 24, speaking about all the earth seeking the presence of Solomon, have said, this is hype. This is obvious exaggeration. It can't really be true. And someone else looking at this chapter says, in effect, that they cannot imagine any king living in the kind of luxury that Solomon lived in unless it was at the expense of the rest of the kingdom. In other words, he must have oppressed them and ruled like a tyrant in order to live in such luxury. Where's the evidence for that? Solomon is not like the tyrant kings of this world. He's not a ruthless king, even like Ahab, who was the most wicked king who ever sat on the throne of the northern kingdom. And he's not a wicked man like Manasseh, who for some 40, nearly 50 years, reigned with wickedness. And he is certainly not like the kings of the ancient Near East. He is God's king. And as God's king, Though imperfectly, he is a man who is known for justice and for righteousness. That was the Queen of Sheba's judgment and assessment. When you read chapter 10, and certainly when you read from verse 14 to 29 that we did not read, you are meant as the one who listens to what is being said in that chapter you are meant to be impressed. You are meant to stand back and say wow! What is going on here? There really is no one else in Solomon's day to be compared to him. The Queen of Sheba certainly was impressed. We read there in verse 5 that when she had seen and heard all these things about Solomon, there was no more spirit in her. What she saw took her breath away. And she said in verse 5, a true report I was given. Indeed, verse 6, the heart was not told me. Verse 7, sorry, the heart wasn't told me. Here I would suggest is an unashamed picture of Solomon in all his glory. And it is a true report. Here is the word of God. This is the testimony of none other than the Holy Spirit of God. These are part of the scriptures that Paul said to Timothy, are given to you to make you wise unto salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to examine with you the truth of what is being displayed here. Here is Solomon in all his glory. And I want you to listen to the testimony of God's word. It is a threefold testimony. First of all, let us listen and be reminded of the testimony of God himself to Solomon's glory. Solomon's glory, without any shadow of doubt, is God-given. This king... This kingdom is God's way of displaying his own glory, his own greatness, his own fame, his own name in an unbelieving and an idolatrous world. And that glory in Solomon is blazing like the noonday sun. Blazing in a way that it never did even under David and would not do again ever after the days of Solomon until the day of Christ. And we will come to that in a moment. Let us remind ourselves that the Lord God is the Lord God of all the earth, of all the nations. And the nations to him are like a drop of water in a bucket. They are like the fine dust upon the scales, as Isaiah describes them. The nations 
represented here in the Queen of Sheba, and according to verse 24, all the earth, the nations, come to Jerusalem, God's chosen dwelling place upon earth. They come to Solomon, and they see Solomon in all his God-given glory. They see him as the one whom God has chosen, whom God has installed, whom God has loved. And they hear the words, the wise words that God has given to this man. And they see the wealth and the prosperity that God has given to this man. But God himself bears testimony to the wisdom and the wealth that he would give to Solomon. Turn back a few chapters to chapter 3 and verse 13. The first time that the Lord God revealed himself to Gibeon in a dream to Solomon. And sometimes those who criticize Solomon overlook this passage. In verse 13, the Lord God says, And I've also given you, Solomon, what you have not asked both riches and honour, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. Now, remember, keep your eye on that passage for a moment. Remember, Solomon had not set his heart upon wealth or upon honour. It was not wealth and honour that led to his downfall. It was the love of foreign women, as we will see. Solomon had not asked for wealth. He had asked for wisdom, for understanding, in order to judge, in order to rule the people of God. To be able to discern good from evil. There it is in verse 9. And we read in verse 10 that the speech pleased the Lord. Solomon had asked this thing. And God's response Verse 12, Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And then verse 13 that we've already read, And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. It is God who gave this man wisdom. It is God who was to give this man wealth and prosperity. And it is God who says twice, there will be no one like you. You will be unique. Now, does God exaggerate? Is God hyping this situation? What we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 is only what God said to Solomon in the first place. So when the writer here says, we've never seen anything like this, all they are doing is saying, well, that's precisely what God said would happen. That's the substance of what God revealed to Solomon when he was a young king at Gibeon. Now, whose testimony then are we to believe? Shall we believe the critics who pour some scorn on Solomon, on his wealth and wisdom, or shall we listen to the testimony of God? Well, there's no debate, is there? We listen to the testimony of God. And to the reader of chapter 10. Understanding what has already gone before and said before, what we're simply saying is this, and seeing is this. Well, we are not surprised. We're not surprised at the wisdom of Solomon. We're not surprised at the wealth of Solomon. This is precisely what God testified he would give to him. And there would be no one like Solomon before him or after him. And God keeps his promises and God kept his promises to Solomon. And therefore what we see here in one sense doesn't surprise us. In another sense it does surprise us as we begin to see the glory and the greatness that God has bestowed upon Solomon. It far exceeds the Queen of Sheba's perception and understanding. But it's not only God who testifies. There are two further testimonies in chapter 10. 
that shows Solomon in all his glory. Let us see what the Queen of Sheba had to say. She comes on a state visit. Now our own Queen has just been on a state visit to America and she's spent time with President Bush. Uh, I don't think she came back with quite the same impression as the Queen of Sheba did from visiting Solomon uh, when she arrived in Jerusalem and she listened to the words and wisdom of Solomon. But let's listen to what the Queen of Sheba said. What is her testimony to Solomon's glory? Now remember, she came somewhat sceptical. She came to prove Solomon, to prove to herself that what she had heard, the report that she had heard, was actually true. She came with hard questions. She spoke with him, verse 2, about all that was on her heart. And then verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. But before we even get there, look at verse 1. Do not gloss over verse 1. The report she heard of Solomon's glory, of Solomon's fame. It is the glory and fame directly connected to the name of the Lord. The fame and reputation of the Lord. She would go on her state visit to Jerusalem, to Solomon. She would see his glory. She would learn his wisdom and learn and realize that the Lord God of Israel was the Lord God of Solomon who had bestowed all these things upon this man. This visit then, this state visit of this woman, this Queen of Sheba, was, if you like, a kind of revelation to her of the glory that belonged to God and had been bestowed upon the kingdom that Solomon was king. And bestowed upon Solomon the wisdom and the wealth that he possessed. What she was doing was visiting the earthly kingdom of God and seeing God's king in his glory. And he answered all her questions. And it outweighed anything she'd ever heard before in her life. And God had said, Solomon, no one like you will arise because of wisdom. No one like you will arise because of wealth. And that's precisely what this woman said. When she heard Solomon's wisdom, when she saw his wealth, she was just breathless. She was effectively saying, no one like you, Solomon. In other words, confirming precisely what God had said. Now remember, who was this woman? This queen of Sheba. She was a pagan. She came from a pagan nation. There's no evidence that she became a worshipper of God. But note her testimony there in verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. You said, I thought a moment ago she was breathless. Well, I guess she had to regain her royal composure. And when she regained her royal composure, she said, how happy are you, Solomon? How blessed you are. But it wasn't Solomon that she blessed ultimately. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you. Solomon must have borne testimony to her of his God. And she recognizes on the one hand the Lord God delights in you, Solomon, and in Israel, the people over who you reign. He set you upon this throne. And he's done so in love, in love for his people. He's made you king to do justice and righteousness. This is drawn out from her lips. This woman is a pagan. She's been used to worshipping idols. She's from Sheba, which is in southwest Arabia, roughly in the area where Yemen is today. No foreign office, 
wrote a diplomatic speech for her like they would have done for Queen Elizabeth when she gave her speech. The Foreign Office writes those speeches so that she doesn't do gaffes and things like that and make mistakes. This woman, this woman gives a spontaneous response. Staggered by what she has seen. Overwhelmed by what she has heard. The report seemed unreal to her. But now it is beyond anything else that she could ever have imagined. The half has not been told, she says to Solomon. Blessed be the Lord your God. And the wise reader again will say, well, we're not really surprised. That's precisely what God said would happen. What is surprising is that the Queen of Sheba acknowledges Solomon's glory. But it is God's revealed glory. It is God who is behind this man and behind this wisdom and behind this wealth. It is God who is making a name for himself in the earth among the heathen nations. This is God asserting his authority. This is God asserting his lordship and his right. This is God declaring that he and he alone is God. But there's a third witness. There's another testimony. You say, well, where's that? There's no one else particularly who appears here. Well, let's not forget the testimony of the storyteller, whoever he is, the narrator, the storyteller to Solomon's glory. He is the one who has recorded this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He is the one who's told us about the visit of the Queen of Sheba. But she was not the only person who made a state visit to Jerusalem and to Solomon. We've already alluded to verse 23. Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And verse 24, now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Notice that phrase, which God had put in his heart. That's the narrator's testimony. This isn't Solomon. This isn't human wisdom. This is the wisdom given to him by God. Just as God promised in 1 Kings chapter 3 when he revealed himself to Solomon. And they brought tribute to Solomon on an annual basis. It was as if Solomon was the only king that mattered in the ancient Near East at that time. Everyone recognised him. Everyone recognized the wisdom that God had given to him and they brought their wealth. The wealth of the nations was brought to Jerusalem and brought to Solomon. There are other aspects in verses 14 to 29 that I'll just draw in very quickly about the wealth and the riches and the honor that God promised Solomon that happened in the latter part of his reign. In verses 14 to 22, gold is mentioned ten times. There is so much gold, silver counts for nothing. Silver is as common as stones. Verse 27. Verse 14 tells us the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Some commentators think that 666 is a little bit uh, suspicious. Why? That's just reading into it. 21 tons or so a year. And that's what came in on a regular basis. There was others, material that came in on a more occasional basis from trading merchants. And what did Solomon do with all this gold? Well, one of the things he did, he made it into a vast royal collection of shields, gold-plated shields that he put into the house of the forest of Lebanon. Verse 16. He made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold into each shield, and he made 300 shields of hammered gold, three miners of gold went into each shield. 200 large gold shields, they were body shields, pretty heavy, but they weren't for weapons for war, they were for show, perhaps brought out on state occasions. And then there were 300 hand shields, also gold-plated. And all the vessels in the house of Lebanon, gold-plated. Remember, the temple is made of gold. There must be heaps of gold in his palace. The house of Lebanon was dripping with the stuff. 
This is what he did with it. It was for show. It was a display of the wealth and the riches of his kingdom that God had given to him. And then verses 18 to 20 tell us of an ivory throne. Now, if you had, a, if you had furniture of ivory, that was luxury. That was wealth. But no, he wasn't satisfied with that. He put gold plate on the ivory. And then he built this magnificent throne. And his armrests were two ivory lions. And then there were steps, six steps, down to the ground level. And on each of those steps, on each side, six lions. And the scripture says, nothing, verse 20, like this had ever been made for any other kingdom. Verse 21, did the Queen of Sheba, was she entertained by Solomon at his table? Well, if she was, everything on the table was made of gold. Everything. The gold vessels, the drinking vessels, they were made of gold. Verse 21, verse 22. And then verses 24 to 29, the last few verses of the chapter. His training ventures, even more wealth. Gold, silver, ivory, apes. And probably better than monkeys, peacocks. Not that it matters very much. There was an import and export trade in horses and chariots again. But this is why, again, it was not for war. These were ceremonial chariots. He brought them from Egypt, traded them with the kings of the north. Kings don't go riding about in just any old horse and cart. Right? They go in chariots. They're displaying their authority and their power and their wealth and they want people to look up to them. And this is what he was doing. He was trading in these royal chariots. And all these things are given without a word of criticism. Because they are confirming what God had promised. Here is Solomon in all his God-given glory. The testimony of God is true. The Queen of Sheba says it is true. The narrator, the storyteller, inspired by the Spirit of God, tells us it is true. Here is Solomon. Here is God's King. Here is Solomon in all his glory. Wisdom given to him by God. Wealth given to him by God. Here is God's kingdom in its greatest glory that was ever manifest here upon the earth in the Old Testament days. Now the question is, what does it all mean for us 3,000 years later? What is the significance of this? Solomon lived a thousand years before Christ. There was a war 3,000 years ago. Yes, but this is the living and abiding word of God. And it does have significance for us. I want to draw out three things. First of all, 1 Kings 10 displaying Solomon in all his glory, understanding that that is a God-given glory, should lead to us having an increasing confidence in our God. An increasing confidence in our God. As you read through this chapter, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, you realise there is nothing small about our God. There is nothing to apologise for, nothing to be ashamed about. Our God is the living and true God. He is the King forever and forever. And here in chapter 10, God displays his glory in a fallen world. He displays his grace in Solomon, in raising him up to reign in justice and in righteousness. But he is displaying his glory, the glory through his servant king, Solomon, to a fallen world, to a pagan world. Kings and queens and princes and their gods and their false religions. And he's asserting his lordship. He is saying, this world is mine and this king is mine and all the wisdom and the wealth that he possesses, I have given him. That's the kind of God that I am. And you men and women who worship other idols, serve other gods, all your false religions, they are nothing. Look at what I am and look at what I do. Look at the wisdom and the wealth that is mine to bestow. 
And the Queen of Sheba, there is a very real sense in which she is forced. Her hand is forced when she sees what she sees and hears what she hears. She is forced to recognize the Lord God of Israel. That he is the one who is responsible for these things. This isn't an isolated event in the Old Testament. Someone from a pagan nation is almost forced to acknowledge and admire Israel and the God of Israel. A few more chapters on. God willing we will come to it in due course. In 2 Kings chapter 5. There's a man who is the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Naaman by name. Proud man. But he is a leper. And no one in Syria can heal him. He sends to his king. And the king sends to Israel's king. He wants to be healed. He sent to his messenger is sent to Elisha, the prophet. And the message that Elisha sent did not please man. Go and dip yourself in the river Jordan seven times. He is furious. What's wrong with the rivers in Damascus? Abana and Parfa, they're much better than the river Jordan. You expect me to go and wash in that filthy stream? And one of his wise servants says, come on, man, this is no big deal. <laughs> Go and do what the prophet says. But to cut a long story short, of course, he goes. And what is his testimony? This proud army commander. Now I know there is no God in all the earth except Israel. A pagan humbled to recognize the hand of God. Go back many hundreds of years to Balak and to Balaam. Balak wanted Israel to be cursed and hired Balaam to curse Israel. And he couldn't do it. Four times he could not do it. He could only bless the nation of Israel. And in Numbers chapter 24 and in verse 7 we read this from the lips of Balaam. How lovely sorry, Numbers 24 and verse 5 How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters, he shall pour water from his buckets, and his water shall be in many his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has the strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. And that's not unusual. Pharaoh and his magicians, you ask them, they will say the same thing. The nations of Canaan, defeated under Joshua, the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius of the Medes. No, our king is king forever and forever. And we should then read a chapter like this and realize the God who is our God is a God who is almighty, all-powerful, the Lord of heaven and earth who is in control even of nations that do not acknowledge him. And he is able to force their hand in order to bow down and recognize him as the one true and living God. That is your God. That is my God. That is the God of the church of Jesus Christ. Now time does not permit me to go into and look with you at Psalm 72 and Isaiah chapter 60. 
But if you read those, that psalm, read Isaiah 60, you will read there of the Gentile nations who will come and who will bless Zion. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Sheba is mentioned again in those passages. The Gentile nations will come. And we look around us and we see false religion and false gods. Shall Islam, shall Buddha, shall the unknown God, the people say, there is out there somewhere. The God of the atheists, because they have gods, though they say they are atheists. Are these men and women, and the nations that worship these gods, are they going to have the last say? No, one day they will bow the knee like Naaman did and say there is no God except the one true and living God. You see, that should inspire a measure of confidence in us and increasing confidence in the greatness of our God and the glory of our God. He is no national deity. He is no far off distant dusty deity in the past. He is an international king. King forever and forever. His power knows no limits. His days know no beginning and no ending. He is the greatest among the great on the earth. He reigns in the highest heavens. He reigns on the earth. He reigns under the earth. He reigns over Satan. He reigns over principalities and powers. He has not changed. He is still working out his purposes. Until that new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. God will work out his purposes and then finally bring them to completion. When we pray, what is our confidence? We pray for various things. But our confidence ultimately in God is the one to whom we pray. The one whom we know. The one whose power is displayed here. The one whose glory is displayed. The one who is working for his own glory. The one who is forcing, as it were, the Queen of Sheba to recognize what he is doing when he bestows wisdom and wealth upon King Solomon. What is it that fuels our prayers? It is confidence in God. It's not the greatness of the request. It's the greatness of God that makes us make great requests of God. We ask great things of God because we know what He is capable of doing. We should not be ashamed of that. We should be bold. This then should increase our confidence in God. But then secondly, it's significant because we need to recognize that someone greater than Solomon has come. Yes, we are told throughout the Old Testament scriptures, no one before, no one after Solomon. Well, obviously that has a context. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who in Matthew and chapter 12 and verse 42 speaks of one who is greater than Solomon, speaking of himself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. See, we can't stop at 1 Kings 10. I would be unfaithful to you if I stopped my sermon at this point. Yes, the wisdom of Solomon and the wealth of Solomon was unsurpassed. As the narrator has told us, as God himself had told Solomon. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate king. And the glory of Solomon fades when seen and compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the problem is that very, very few people see and understand the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
Very few people see it in that crucified Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Jews cannot accept a king who has been crucified. Never be the Messiah, they say. Remember Paul tells us that the rulers of this age, if they knew, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. The Christ is full of glory. God has invested his glory in his Son, Jesus Christ, in a way that exceeds that of Solomon. Because the glory of Jesus Christ is seen in the person. He is the Word made flesh. And John says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You could never say that of David. You could never say that of Solomon. That belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ in the glory of his person as the eternal Son of God made flesh. Solomon was but a man. Jesus is the divine Son from heaven who has taken our nature. And Jesus, furthermore, is the only mediator between God and man. And his glory is there. He said, you cannot come to the Father except by me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In so doing, he sets aside all other religions. There is no other way to the one true and living God. And that glory of the mediator resides in Jesus Christ alone. But now he has been raised from the dead. And he has been given a place of preeminence at the right hand of God the Father. Greater than Solomon's throne. Solomon's throne was great. An ivory throne with his six steps. Lion by lions. What is that? to the throne of Christ at the right hand of the Father. All authority is being given to him. Place of preeminence. Firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15 The firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18 Raised from the dead. All things are under his feet. He is the head over all things for the church. That is the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. Solomon was rich and rich beyond any other. He was wise beyond any other. But the God who bestows that wisdom and that wealth has bestowed far more glory and wisdom and wealth upon his son Jesus Christ. And it is from that wisdom and from that wealth of this glorious person of Jesus Christ, the blessings of salvation come. What is true prosperity is not how much money you have in your bank account. True prosperity is a soul prosperity that comes from knowing that God has proclaimed peace through his Son, Jesus Christ. That God has blotted out all your transgressions and all your sins. This Jesus is your Saviour. He is your King. He is your Redeemer. You recognise him? You recognise him on the cross? You recognise him at the right hand of his Father? You recognise him upon his throne where he will come? in judgment. Do you not then embrace him? Do you not rejoice in him? Do you not love him? Worship him? Serve him? Honour him? What is it to you if men and women hold you in contempt because you love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? What is that compared with the glory that belongs to Christ and the glory that one day will be bestowed upon you in unmeasured fullness. Because our Bibles tell us that we are not only heirs, but we are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ.
we shall reign with Christ. We shall reign with Christ. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure that I can enter into that. But it is something of the glory that he bestows. I know that when I look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, behold something of his glory and his majesty and his beauty and his power and his wisdom and the prosperity and the riches of his grace. I cannot but doubt that he who dies believing dies safely. Dies safely with Christ, in Christ. And will be brought to glory with him. A greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was without parallel in the ancient Near Eastern world. But Christ is without parallel in this vast universe. There is no one like him. No saviour. No glorious redeemer like him. And he has come. And he's saved you from your sins. He's going to bring you to glory with himself. But then there is one last thing for us to learn. Not only an increasing confidence in God, not only we recognize one greater than Solomon is here, but there is a warning here to all who would reject God's king. Turning again to Matthew 12 and verse 42. Jesus said to that unbelieving generation that refused him and refused salvation, wanted signs and wonders on their own terms, he said to them, Do you know, you unbelieving generation, you will see the Queen of Sheba again on the day of judgment. She will be there. She came from the ends of the earth to see Solomon in all his glory and she believed what she saw. She saw less than you see. She heard less than you have heard. But she will rise in judgment and condemn this unbelieving generation. Unless you bow your knee to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and recognize He is God's King, that He is the Messiah, the only Savior of sinners there is, The Queen of Sheba will be there on that day pointing a finger at you saying I came all that way to see Solomon and I believed. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you did not believe. You had that offer of salvation made to you but you did not believe. One of the amazing things in the Old Testament is the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentile nations of the world. God says, Jesus Christ says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's God's testimony. That's God's invitation. The Queen of Sheba was able to recognize that God had blessed Solomon. But the Queen of Sheba never entered into this. You bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And in Christ you will find more wisdom, more wealth, more prosperity than this world could ever give you. Even if you had lived in the days of Solomon. Why? Because God will make you rich through his Son, Jesus Christ. He or she who comes to Jesus Christ will never be poor. I do not mean financially poor. Why? Because my Bible tells me of the riches of God's grace. Lavished. Lavished. God is extravagant in his grace. He is rich beyond measure and has invested all that extravagance about riches in Christ. And in Christ he bestows the forgiveness of sins. In Christ he bestows a kingdom. In Christ he bestows peace. Salvation. 
what you enjoy now is but the beginning. There's a great deal more to come when Christ comes in all his glory. Read Revelation 21. There's a lot more gold there, even more so than there is here in Solomon's kingdom. There is a glory there. And it's not the glory of so much of gold and silver, it's the glory of Christ. There's no sun and moon there. The Lamb is all the light. The Lamb is all the wisdom. The Lamb is really the wealth and the prosperity, the salvation that God bestows in his Son, Jesus Christ. How wonderful is the glory of God. May God, by his Spirit, give us eyes to see not only the glory that is Solomon's, but realize that it is God-given. And then lift up our eyes and see the glory that is Christ's and the glory that is ours if we believe upon him. Amen. O oh Lord, our God, we would glory in our Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for the glory that belongs to him to him in all his beauty as that person the Messiah, the Saviour our Redeemer his glory that belongs to him as the one who was crucified now raised from the dead and seated at your right hand the glory of the coming judge of all the earth the one who will bring his purposes to pass and fulfil all your plan of redemption, gathering his people to himself into his kingdom. Lord, we gladly bow before you now and ask that you would be merciful and gracious to us, that we might love and adore our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, marvelling at your power, marvelling at your wisdom, made confident as we live our lives in this world, not fearing men, not fearing what they might say, not fearing the contempt and reproach, but confident in you, our God. Exalt your name then through your Son, Jesus Christ, in all the earth, among all the nations. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.